Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 652 with my return guest, Mark Marin. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. That's, that's usually pretty evident about, uh, about 15 seconds into the podcast. Uh, welcome anybody who's a, a new listener. And uh, thank you to those of you who have signed up via Patreon. Um, I have been expressing a uh, kind of an intense need for financial support the last few weeks because I have parted ways with a long time, um, by my choice, a long time um, sponsor of the show. And I legally don't want to go into uh, any details right now, but it just felt like it was the right decision to make. And um, that is, uh, that's, <laughs> that's enough. Hey, I accidentally uh, said something wrong a couple of weeks ago. I was reading a survey by a, a male survivor of uh, childhood sexual trauma, and I said, you should check out uh, the website oneinthree.org. It's actually oneinsix.org, and it's a great resource for men uh, who are in that struggle of uh, healing from childhood or teenage sexual abuse. People in Los Angeles, August 2nd, I'm going to be doing a live show uh, at a comedy club, actually, even though it's not going to be a comedy performance slash talk. Um, one of the, let's see, how much of this do I explain? I, I am going to be sharing about my life, about the podcast, about mental health in general, incorporating some audience participation. Um, there will be a couple of comedians before me on stage, but <clears throat> again, yeah, there might be a little humor in, in my talk. I don't know what, what, what to call it. Talk, performance. But if you're interested in hearing my story or my thoughts about mental health in general, um, it's um, it's an avenue that I am pursuing these days. Uh, 
getting out there and seeking speaking engagements. And so I am going to make a video of it and begin to use that to try to book speaking engagements. And so uh, I would love it if you would come out if you're in the Southern California area. It's going to be at Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank on August 2nd. That's a Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. And right now, tickets are only available to people who subscribe um, or are monthly donors on Patreon. And your tickets are half price. Um, Full price tickets aren't even that expensive. I think it's $20 worth of service charge. Uh, So it would be $10 for the, uh, the nice people on Patreon. And again, I so appreciate your support as well as the people who um, have created uh, monthly donation profiles on PayPal. Every, every little bit helps. And uh, can you sense how uncomfortable I am asking for help? (laughs) The guy who tells people every fucking episode, stop being afraid to ask for help. All right, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by another cat lady, and I believe we have read some of her surveys before. And she writes, uh, it's not a question. After filling out like four surveys in which I answered nope to the question about suggestions for the podcast, as I was about to leave the page, I finally had a substantive suggestion. I think it would be amazing if you had a survey about religious trauma slash abuse. I love your idea, and I went immediately and created a religious trauma slash abuse survey. The link for it right now is not up. The guy who does my website um, is, is working on putting that link on the website, but if you go to my Facebook page, uh, you will see it there. Uh, And I believe I have it on my personal Facebook page as well as the Facebook for the show, which is facebook.com slash mental pod. You'll find the link there. You can can fill out that survey. I'm very interested to see what the people fill out for that because in the 12 years I've been doing the podcast, I've run across a lot of people who have experienced trauma um, from organized religion or a parent who is... uh, you know, misusing, should we say? Perhaps the original intent of a religion. This is from uh, also the Ask Paul Anything survey. And thank you, by the way, for for that suggestion. I love uh, when I'm able to incorporate ideas uh, that people have for the show. This is filled out by Shannon and... uh, She writes, would you ever have someone on the show who is just a regular person with an interesting story slash life? We've had many, many regular, as you say, people on the show. Uh, We've had listeners. um, We've had uh, people who I don't know through support groups, um, people who aren't in the public eye. Um, That being said, the... I just happened to the last batch of recordings of, of male guests in the last couple of weeks or the last month, um, about half of them have not been released yet, are men who are in the public eye. So I am aware that uh, it would be nice for the folks that, that want to hear um, people who aren't in the public eye. I, I am definitely keeping that in mind. Uh, 
it's it's a I wouldn't say an ongoing struggle, but it is uh, it's something that I'm aware of when I'm booking booking guests and trying to uh, have a balance in there so it's you know not the kind of the same story over and over again three weeks in a row. Uh, but but thank you for weighing in on that. If you go to the website metalpod.com, you can look through past episodes, and if you just read the show notes, you can see uh, a description of who the guest is. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Shenanigan. Oh, are you up to it again? Why were you hospitalized for psychosis and catatonia? Don't see that word much in the surveys, which is kind of surprising. Describe your experience. I have a lot to say, but I'll try to keep it short. It obviously helped because they got me on the right medications and knew how to help. I did actually make a friend. His name is also Paul. He was an older gentleman with bipolar, and then parentheses, was recovering from a manic episode. He was a guardian angel while I was there, always checking in on me, reading me prayers, doing activities with me, etc. After I left, I later learned I also have bipolar. My time in the hospital was largely traumatic, but Paul made it better. I think about him a lot. That's so weird because my name is Paul and I think about myself a lot. It, it seems like God had a hand in that. In all, all seriousness, I'm, I'm glad that you got on the right meds. And, uh, and I'm sorry that you had an uh, otherwise terrible experience, uh, sadly. From the hundreds of psych ward experience surveys that I've read, it uh, seems like, I don't know if I would say the majority, but a substantial amount of uh, people's experiences in psych wards were overwhelmingly negative. And, you know, as I say that, I kind of cringe because I'm like, oh, I don't want somebody who would benefit from going there to have that dissuade them from getting the help they need. But it's it's complicated, man. Our our mental health and just health in general system needs such such overhauling. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, Callista, and uh, it took me a couple of readings of this to understand what she was saying. Callista is in her sixties, and apparently there is a gift card called happy cards or happy moment cards that you can give as gifts and then people have an option of i don't know maybe a half dozen places that you can spend this this gift card and Callista writes i don't have a and then then in caps happy moments uh every time i get these happy moment cards that i am not very happy because i cannot use them See, it seems like Callista was writing in a uh, a speedy fury of uh, sharing her feelings about happy cards. I also request my relative not to buy any more happy moments card. And I'm reading exactly as she wrote it because I refuse and refuses in caps to accept them. It gave me more headaches when I tried to request for an upper management that several of your supervisors that one of the supervisors state stated that there is no manager. And one of the supervisors refused 
to transfer me to the direct manager. I really like your happy moment cards because they are all useless and your customer representatives are totally unprofessional. I am a very unhappy customer, exclamation point. Callista, there is a lot for us to decompress right there. And you know what? I'm just going to let this be. And I'm going to send you a happy moment card. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself No Talent Ass Clown. I believe we've read some of his surveys before. What are your thoughts on the show Hoarders? Is it exploiting people who are mentally ill? I have never really watched uh, much of Hoarders other than a, a, a snippet here or there. But my feeling on shows that deal with it like Intervention and, and other shows is the way that they handle it, just having a show on a topic to me is not exploited, but the manner in which they cover it. Do they get into the roots of what might be causing someone's hoarding? Do they share what some resources are? Do they show what recovery looks like? And if they're not doing those things, then I think it is exploitive. Uh, Another uh, survey filled out by another cat lady. Actually, we got two in a row from another cat lady. And this is from the Back in Time survey. Share a moment in your life where you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. To college me, who rarely left her dorm room or bed and was falling, failing everything. You are, I would say you are deeply depressed. You need help. Ignore what mom says about therapy and go now. You actually have bipolar. And while it might take a while for the doctors to figure out a particular diagnosis, and I know it's terrifying and doesn't seem real, you need to start getting help now rather than waiting another six or seven years. Thank you for that. It so bums me out when somebody shares a story about going to a parent and the parent telling them that therapy or support groups or any kind of help is a is a waste of time. It's just, uh, it's heartbreaking. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must read for anyone in medicine from a doctor turned patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath.
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And then one last uh, survey before we get to that interview with with Mark. Um, as I said, this is uh, also a survey by another cat lady, and this is from the Fears survey. And uh, she writes, I fear manic episodes. I have bipolar one, and some of the worst memories I have happened during manic episodes before I was diagnosed. I'm in debt from manic spending and the trauma from a one-night stand I had during an episode seven or so years ago has changed my entire outlook on dating and sex and myself and I believe triggered a binge eating disorder that I haven't been able to shake. I've gained over 100 pounds since that night and have only recently been connecting the dots back to that night. I wasn't raped or assaulted, but I think I was legitimately out of my mind at the time and I'm terrified mostly of the idea that I could be so teeth-clenchingly manic that I could make that kind of decision for myself without a second thought because all of my inhibitions have been squelched by mania. I worry constantly about what I'm going to do in my next episode, and I'm constantly on edge looking for signs of mania. It's almost a relief when I'm deeply depressed because it means I'm not manic. I vaguely know there are mixed episodes, but I don't think I have them or at least haven't yet. I was diagnosed four years ago, and this fear has only ballooned in that time. I should probably talk to a therapist about this, but since my money's going to pay off that debt at the moment, it's not an option. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our willingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is very hard to heal in dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> uh, I'm here with uh, my friend Mark Marin. And uh, haven't seen you in person? Little little while we've talked on the phone a couple of times, but it's good to see you, man. It's good to see you too. Yeah, I I can't remember the last time we saw each other in person, and then yeah, we did speak on the phone a couple of times, and then I forgot to call you back. And then when I finally did call you back, uh, you were concerned that uh, maybe I didn't like you anymore. <laughs> Dude, I go to that if somebody doesn't return my text within twenty four hours, uh, I go right to I'm a terrible person, and I don't know why. What did I do? What did I do? I, uh, yeah, I'm like that too. But I've grown, I've I've grown to realize that, that sometimes texts just hang there. Yeah. Like if you if you if you really look at your texting relationships, none of them very rarely do they end with, uh, okay, I'll talk to you later, or uh, I'll text you tomorrow. It just sort of hangs there, and you're like, all right, I guess that's done. Yeah. That one. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I well, I've I've had I, I I've had to learn that stuff. That's all a uh, cognitive uh, sort of act as if stuff in yes. terms of the uh, panic. It's know? hard because your central nervous system's telling you one thing, and your frontal lobe is going, "It's okay." Yeah. What did I do? Where are you? What's happening? It's like Jesus. I just got out of the shower. <laughs> what What have you been doing for twelve minutes? <laughs> you don't want to know, man. It's spiraling, spiraling. Mm. Um, one of your one of your go to people is Jerry Stahl, who's yes. been a guest a couple of times. Yeah, he's a good go to guy. Yeah, you, J- you know. did Jerry ever get drained by your bullshit? Jerry, no, no, never, never. Jerry will never get drained from my bullshit. And and Jerry has a pretty dark well. Yeah. So you're not going to say anything that's going to surprise oh, God, Jerry. No, ever. God, no. And uh, no, he, you know, he's. He always thinks that he's draining, but he isn't. You know, we, him and I go, go back pretty far now. And he's been my go-to guy through, you know, really, I think through at least, you know, one divorce, you know, one death, you know, and, uh, and, and any sort of kind of stuff that, you know, I can't talk to anybody else about. Um, and, you know, we also socialize. We, you know, he comes with me, we go do comedy and, you know, I have his, go out to dinner with him and his partner and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Friend. Good friend. Uh, so one of the reasons I wanted to to have you on, and, and it felt so delicate broaching the subject because I didn't want to feel exploitive, mm. was to talk about grief. Mm-hmm. And um, for those of that you, those of you that that don't know, um, uh, Mark's girlfriend uh, passed away was two years ago. Three, right? Three years ago. Yeah. Was, was it was during the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. Like a few months in, really. Like yeah. I, w- I guess it would be May. Um, I guess it's coming up on three years, right? May 2020. Uh, t- talk about Lynn. How did you guys meet? And Lynn was uh, a director and really, really talented human being well um scoot into the mic a little bit if you sure, would buddy yeah uh i like grief nice and close well lynn and i met because it was odd because i had ulterior motives to be honest with you it's uh it's a complicated thing uh, yeah. that we got time my um my second ex-wife who was a comedian and you know and also somebody it didn't end well and we're not friends and, you know, she has every reason to, uh, you know, not, not really <laughs> talk to me. You know, when you don't have kids and you have exes, there's no reason to talk, be friends necessarily. Right. But she got me sober, that woman. And, you know, how, it, how, how so it was sort of a doomed thing from the get go, I guess. Well, Oh, how so? Well, I was, I was sort of, I was married to another woman and, and I was sort of spiraling the drain with, you know, cocaine and, and alcohol and, and my career and everything else. And I was in this marriage that I was not happy in. And I was sort of, uh, you know, I, I was getting kind of bloated and sweaty and I'd kind of, um, surrendered to the idea that I would never amount to much as a comic. And, and I was living in New York with this, with my wife and, um, wasn't being on the level with her philandering sure yeah i come from a 
a long line of philanderers. Sure. Yeah. It's an acquired skill. Not really. It's a birthright for me. My, uh, <laughs> my, uh, my father was a philanderer. My grandfather was a philanderer. Yeah, go way back. But, um, but nonetheless, you know, I was, I was drinking and using drugs a lot. And I just, it, and how it happened with that wife, it was sad because I didn't know how to get out. And I used to, you know, go, I'd go out and I'd do comedy and I'd come home on coke, sweaty, you know, just laying in bed next to a sleeping person, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to die, listening to my heart pound. And it was just, I was literally hoping like. I, Why would the, you want to give that up? No, no, no reason. I was like, there's only one way out of this and that's a, a heart attack. That's yeah. that's my that's my out. I got I don't have the courage to just break up like a person or cop to who I am. I just want to die. That'd be easier I think for everybody. But uh ultimately what happens is I'm at the comedy cellar one night and this gorgeous woman comes up to me and says, "Aren't you Mark Marin?" And I was like, "Yeah." You know, puffy and sweaty. She goes, "What happened to you?" <laughs> oh no. And I was like, what? She's like, what happened? You, I'm a big fan, but what happened to you? And she, Meaning? She, well, just like... Like I just, the sight of you? Yeah, or? the sight of me. And, yeah. you know, that she was a fan of, of, you know, my HBO half hour from the 90s. And she was beautiful. And she was a comic. Um, and she goes, look, I can, you know, if you need to get sober, I, I can help you. And I'm like, I'll do anything you tell me to do. You know, I was just in totally... Uh, taken with her and, and that night I think the first night I met her I just followed her home not really I mean we were walking together and she, she gave me a low down on AA and I said you know I had some experience with it on and off in my past but it never stuck and and I just sort of was so enamored with her that I did what she told me to do basically and I locked on to her and we started you know a romantic relationship and she got me into meetings and I just went at that time, you know, she just taught me the basics and uh, and said like, you know, 90 and 90 and taught me all the little sayings. And I was in and out for a minute, but like, you know, I stuck with it mostly because I wanted to be with her and there was no way I could be with her if I wasn't so. Which is like the thing that they say, you can't get sober for somebody else. You know, That's you're right. getting sober for all the wrong reasons, et cetera. I et, guess, et cetera. but at that moment, like I was clearly ready to get sober. Right. And and the fact that this beautiful woman was, uh, you know, into me. But I think it was a little bit of a hostage situation. I didn't understand codependency. I didn't understand the program. But we went to meetings every day. She got me to meetings every day, at least once a day, twice a day, got sponsors, went through sponsors. But... You know, it was I had so little going on and, and it, was, it was also an excuse for us to spend time together uh, before the marriage fell apart. Um, but like it stuck. And, you know, despite the fact that I latched on to her and uh, I basically took a hostage and we ended up moving out here and I ended up kind of marrying her, definitely marrying her in, in an effort to sort of hopefully guarantee that she wouldn't leave me. But I was terribly insecure. Was that in the vows? Yes. Yeah. Please don't leave because I'll be very sad and mad. And also I'm emotionally abusive. And you'll accept that. You may now kiss the bride. (laughs) But she she didn't. And it was was a very wrought and terrible time that I have a great deal of uh, shame and... and, um, uh, Look, man, you, you know... 
I had no idea about codependency. I was incapable of any sort of emotional kind of responsibility. I, I, I actually think, honestly, as time goes on, that I was somewhat borderline personality. I think a little mm-hmm. bit. But nonetheless, y- you know, she eventually had a a sort of Al Anon bottom and, you know, and had to uh, detach and leave me. And even left though me. you weren't using, even though you were totally not you using. were physically sober, but totally. clearly not. But out of my mind, sober. jealous, angry, yelling, you know, emotionally frightening, abusive. Um, and were there bad parts to you? No, that was all the good stuff. Emotionally abusive. Uh, uh, but you know, I just, um, so much, but the, the weird thing is, is that she left me and, you know, ended up with another guy that seems good and we don't talk or anything. And I literally have not seen her for a long time uh, ever since, you know, we separated, like I haven't run into her, but you know, she's got a couple of kids and stuff, but I used to, um, I used to email her every year on my sober birthday to thank her for getting me sober. And I've made like two amends with her, you know, written. She would not have a, a person, you know, she didn't want to have a face-to-face and amends ever. And and they're genuine, and I carry a lot of, I still I still don't feel completely without regret. That seems pretty human. Yeah. Yeah. But like the last, a few years ago, it was, it was kind of great because it, it speaks to a certain lack of emotional sobriety anyway. So I, a few years ago, I had sent her my yearly, you know, mm-hmm. thank you for getting me sober despite whatever's happened. And and she sent back, uh, emailed me back uh, an email that said, uh, if I want to hear from you, I'll let you know. Oh, my God. That's so fantastic. <laughs> that's and then so it's fantastic. A, I think that just made my day. Yeah. And, and that's that moment you realize, like, oh, shit, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that sends this email once a year. And she's yeah. like, oh, fuck. Why is this? Yeah. So it was the fear we talked about in the beginning of the of the podcast mm. they didn't just forget mm-hmm. no you what do you mean they they really are disgusted by you oh be, yeah, when, when when were we referring to uh when you didn't uh text me back or call oh, me right back. right yeah right. the fear that oh, oh that's i've done right. something that's wrong right. that yeah. i can't see and i'm a terrible person deep down but inside. to me it was it was like i finally got it you know, and she was always, you know, very good and about understood codependency. We even went to double winners meetings. But, you know, I was when you're, you know, sober and not recovering otherwise. And that's why they tell you not to have a relationship in your first year. Yeah, because you're crazy and you're incapable. And I don't know if I'm really that capable now uh, emotionally. You, you know, I'm definitely not angry and I'm not a raging person anymore. And I'm not... um you know, jealous, you know, but I can get jealous. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure at this point in my life that, you know, I've grown out of all that stuff or or evolved, or I just don't put myself in the position to experience it. Like Mm -hmm. I shut myself off. Do you ever wonder what it'd be like if you hadn't experienced the uh, enormous success that you've experienced? If the, if the um, part of what, has brought you more peace is the fact that you've kind of checked off the box of, um, you know, quote unquote, making it. I guess. But I mean, does that stop, you know, don't you just find other things to judge yourself against? Don't yeah. you just find yeah. and other, I mean, like I'm in sort of a bad place with this sort of self 
kind of flagellation again and mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, not good enough stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know. In in what way? Well, just like, could I be doing more? Could I be doing better? What do I do now? Is my special as good as this special? Why am I not, you know, why can I, you know, be more, um, have a broader audience? You know, like they're, 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 it never ends never in ends. some ways. But, but it's less, and, and I have self-talk that will diminish it. But getting back to your question about about how I met Lynn, you know, so my my second wife, I've recently actually had uh, coffee with my first wife, which was kind of astounding. Because mm-hmm. um, I knew her, you know, through, you know, she was a family friend, my brother's First wife was her best friend, and all, it's all interconnected. But it was kind of amazing to see her again and get caught up. But again, we're not going to, you know, necessarily be pals. But you know, there's closure there that mm-hmm. I never really had with with my second wife in the sense that, like, you know, there's just this she, the, the the thing about her drawing that boundary so heavy, even at, after so many years, it, it sort of makes you realize, like, what you know, what I saw as a, a sort of pivotal though troubled part of my life she just i think in retrospect sees as this weird glitch a mistake she made yeah you which know. is kind of awesome and yeah. kind of awful right at the same time yeah and you know and i get that but in and the thing that was correct about her boundary was this that it is that it was selfish like i was reaching out to her because i wanted to connect right. <laughs> yes do you know it what wasn't I wanted about to, making amends to her it, or it, thanking her even it was about engaging right and that's that tricky thing about you know sex love addiction all that stuff yeah. is it in codependency it's like you 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 want to engage and the hardest thing on either side of that is you know detaching enough to to stop yourself from yeah. that compulsion yes and it's so I don't think there's anybody we lie to as much as ourselves I mean maybe I should speak for myself but um when I was apologizing to people for for my behavior, it suddenly occurred to me with a couple of them that I was trying to manage uh, how I looked rather than really considering their feelings. Not that I didn't consider their feelings at all, but there was a large component of, I want to spin this so that I walk away looking you know, better than I had in their eyes previously. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, it's weird. And also there's some amends I just couldn't make because I didn't want to. Just resentment? I don't know if it was resentment. It was pride. Mm. Um, it's odd. Uh, and I think about it a lot. And, and also what you start to realize is that uh, as you get older is that, look, it's your choice to to die with that stuff. You know, you're, you're not perfect. You're not going to be perfect. And right. if you're going to hold on to some things and you have to realize after a certain point, well, well, you're taking it to the grave. You right. okay. Yeah. And how's that, how's that affecting the quality of your life presently? Who is, f- is that worth it? Who knows, dude? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean? It's like, is it, is it like ruining my life on a daily basis? No. Does it have some broader implication? Would it make me more, you know, vulnerable, evolved person have some humility, more humility. If if I do them, I guess uh, is part of what drives me in life. Fuck you, yeah, a little bit. I think you've got the makings of a book called "I Guess" for you. 
but have to you have to somehow capture that tone. And it's you shrugging. Yeah, the, the picture angrily. on the front. I guess. Yeah. You know. Uh, but I met Lynn because, you know, I had come. She had come to my attention because she was sort of shepherding my second wife's movie idea based on a one-person show and a book that you know um, that she had put together when we were together about her childhood. And I, you know, I saw that was in development at uh, the Sundance, mm-hmm. uh, Sundance, whatever that is, their school, and that there was this picture of Lynn Shelton, and you know, and she was going to work on you know my ex's book, and it was such a stunning picture, and I'm like, well, who's this person, you know, that's you know, you, you know, so there was some kind of like. Again, I wanted to engage. Sure, and how can I complicate this emotionally even more? <laughs> For all of us. Yes. And and But by the time, you know, Lynn came on my show and I had seen some of her movies, the, she, she, that was no longer happening. And I was just sort of mildly in love with this picture of her. And she looked kind of like my ex. And she was also from Seattle, which is where my ex was. It, was. it was all kind of weird. But so I have Lynn on the show, I guess, in 2016. And we immediately just, it was crazy. But she was married. You know, I was involved. And... You know, it just became this thing where we had this sort of unspoken crush. Yes, but it was big. And we worked together after that. She directed, I believe, some Marins and she, you know, directed two of my HBO specials uh, or my Netflix specials and um, over time. Um, But it took years for us to sort of find the space and get safely out of what we were both involved with to be together. And I never really trusted the intensity of our attraction because I don't, I don't trust love in any way. It's somebody, you know, uh, it's just the nature of how I was brought up. But there was a moment there where, um, you know, it got to this point where it was like, I knew that, you know, if I didn't honor this or if I didn't surrender to it, I would, I would regret it for like the rest of my life. And she had separated from her husband, and uh, you know, I finally you know found it within myself to separate from the woman I was involved with for several years. And I said, you know, and I just we were together, uh, Lynn and I were together, and I was like, I, I just started crying. I was like, I don't, I don't want to not do this because I don't want to regret this. And you know, I I never really believe in these, in these feelings because I'm not an emotionally healthy person, and usually when I feel this intense and attraction it's 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 not rooted in emotions it's it's rooted in in compulsion and um which is you know that that's an interesting way to declare your love for somebody <laughs> there's no hallmark card for that but but we did it and you know once we sort of let ourselves have it. We had to wait a little while to be public about it. And, you, you know, and then finally that happened. And, you know, when we were together for not that long, uh, you know, we, we were able to do some stuff, you know, publicly and, you know, and own our relationship, for, I guess, probably about a year or so, maybe. And, and then the pandemic hit, you know, and then she, you know, she had just, you know, sort of put the divorce papers together for herself and moved down to L.A. and because she's a filmmaker and, you know, and she was getting some big opportunities and she finally, you know, her marriage was not great for a long time, apparently. And so she got in a, a rented a house down here and was all, you know, got all her stuff down here. And then, you know, the pandemic hit 
And so we were sort of holed up at my house, and she was trying to sort of get her house together, but it was a weird time. And, uh, you know, and then three months into the, you know, the, or like it was May, you know, she, she got sick and, uh, and uh, died very quickly. And she was with you uh, yeah. when it happened. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, you know, we were sort of immersed in the panic of COVID and, you know, honoring all the rules and not knowing really what was up. And, you know, it was still pretty new and pretty scary. And I was testing a lot and, you know, trying to, you know, I, you know, just... It's terrifying, the whole thing. But, you know, she had had some sort of, like, you know, I don't know. It, it's you tr I try to put it together. You know, when did she, you know, when, because it was a, a disease that was in her. But, so what happens is that she just ha got sick. You know, she got a fever. Her glands were swollen. You know, she had pain. Um you know, in her stomach, but she was also somebody that had a very specific way of managing her health because she had, you know, gut problems and she, you know, couldn't eat a lot of things. She had celiacs and she had a supplement regimen and she had, you know, ways of managing through naturopathy, a lot of her, you know, sort of chronic health issues around her, her gut and her brain a little bit. But she got sick and, you know, we didn't know what it was. And she went and got COVID tested a couple of times and it wasn't COVID. And, you know, and then she had a video appointment with uh, her doc and they thought maybe it's strep throat and it's symptomatically with strep throat, fever, swollen glands, tired. And we had a ZPAC and the doc was like, well, why don't you try do the antibiotics for a few days. And she did. She went through those and the fever wasn't relenting. And I, I got very scared. And, um, and we'd made an appointment to go to the doctor, um, the following day. And then that night of that day, uh, the day before she collapsed, uh, you know, I heard her collapse. I, she was in the guest bedroom across from my bedroom cause she was, you know, so sick. And I just heard her, her fall down. And I got up and um, she was on the floor and it was a clearly bad situation. She was conscious, but uh, but I called the ambulance and and the ambulance came and um, you know they took her away and uh, and then she was just you know fighting for her life for the next you know I don't know eighteen hours, twenty hours, and died of. Uh, of acute myeloid leukemia that was undiagnosed, apparently. And, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've, I've, the only thing that I've managed to do over time is, uh, uh, stop myself from crying when I talk about it. <laughs> you know, because I don't, I don't know. So that's what happened. I appreciate you going back down into the. Well, you know, um, I don't know. Like, I don't know where, you know, the, the processing of it was, um, 
like even now, because I have a lot of caffeine in me and, you know, and a lot of, um, like I knew what I was going to talk about. And I've certainly done enough, a lot of public crying around this thing. But um, you really, someone dying tragically out of nowhere is like you know, death in and of itself. It's devastating when someone you love gets sick and dies. But yeah, I mean, I don't have an experience of it other than you know some friends in the past. But to, for it to happen so unexpectedly, so quickly, and and to somebody so vital and alive, I don't know. It was um, it was horrendous. And it was the middle of COVID and and there's so many things that complicated it, you know, uh, in terms of how to handle it. But yeah, that's what happened. Talk about the, your process of, of grieving and how it might have differed from your idea of what grief was before you experienced one of the most profound versions of it. I had no experience of it, you know, and, and I'm really, other than losing people, I, that, that, you know, there are people that, you know, I've known that have passed away and, you know, my friend, um, in high school passed away, but like, I, I don't know that I, I really understood it. You know, I, I don't even know, both of my parents are still alive and I seem to have a sort of detachment around the possibility of their dying because I, I don't know that I've, I, I see them in the, in the same way that other people see their parents. Like I'm not that invested somehow, but in processing it, I don't know, man, you know, it was COVID. So there was no way to, to grieve with people. You know, my brother came out immediately and there was a lot of practical things that had to be done. So I just locked into this zone of like, you know, what are we going to do with all her stuff? You know, all her stuff is, you know, a lot of stuff is here. And there were so many supplements and so many like, you know, the, the, you know, the attempts at managing her health, you know, and, and all the stuff around how did this go? How was this missed? You know, she had a, a fairly thorough, uh, uh, oncology exam around something, you know, in her chest. She had a, year, a month, a couple, a few months before, you know, she had, they had sort of scanned her, her chest cause she had a bronchial thing. And there was some sort of thing in there that the doc said didn't look like a tumor, but I think it was some sort of clotting relative to what she actually did have. I think she had some sickness before, you know, right before the pandemic that wasn't COVID, but I think it was directly related to the onset of the symptoms of this leukemia that went undiagnosed. But, you know, you can't, you know, and also what could I have done anything? So there's a lot of things that happen in the aftermath of that. And dude, I, you know, I talk about it in my, my newest special because a lot of the processing I, I chose to do relatively publicly when I could. And I don't think that was selfish. I think it was, you know, that. I think people who know you expected it. I think there was that, but also I, I did really believe that, like, you know, I, I put myself out there in a certain way, and this was a very important thing that was really not, I'd never heard it, but I wasn't thinking about, you know, promoting my grief, but I had responsibilities, I thought, 
as as, as uh, the person that I am in 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 the public eye. But so my brother came out immediately, which was good, and and we're still dealing with COVID. So like, there's all this sort of like, are you okay? Did you get tested? Are you you know where are we at? Because you know we didn't have vaccines, we didn't have a knowledge of you know you know whether or not you know we would die if we got it and whatnot. So, but he came right out, and you know and and. Food started coming and so many people in our community reached out like I would never have imagined, like everybody, because it was public. It was in variety and but comics and a lot of everybody, you know, and then all the fans. So there was that support. And there was also sort of a Shiva kind of Zoom thing going on starting the day after she passed, which was a little gnarly. You know, because in, in what way? Well, you know, I mean, you know, her and I I don't know. I just didn't, I, I felt like, you know, there was just this feeling that, you know, I, I didn't know a lot of the people, you know, my relationship with her was relatively new. Um, and you know, a lot of the people she, you know, her family and, you know, friends have known her her whole life for 20 years and, you know, 30 years, whatever. She has a son that I didn't really know. I didn't have a relationship with her family, really, because we hadn't really gotten that far along with anything. And, and um, you know, like when when they she, when they were taking her away to the, uh, you know, in in the hammock down the stairs, you know, I said, you know, let me have your phone. She's like, I'm taking my phone, and I'm like, well, give me the code. And I don't, you know, I don't even know why, but I, I said, I need give me the code in case anything happens. And she did, and you know, and then she got there, and she never really regained consciousness. And you know, I had to, you know, call an ICU nurse and say, like, open that phone and give me some Sheltons because I don't know her people. I don't even know her father's name. And she had listed me as the point of contact, not thinking that she was going to be dying. And I'm like, I have to loop her family in because you know, it's I I I don't feel like it's my place to to deal with this properly. You know, you know. I I need her family it looped in, so I had to loop in the family that way. How awful! The on worst. top of all of that, well, I didn't even know him. You know, I don't. You know, and I and I had to call her father and say, like, you know, she's in trouble. You know, she's in the hospital and she's in trouble, and you know, get him looped in. You know, and then her mother is married to someone else. They're both in separate things. I had to get everyone looped in, and I was, in, you know, and you're in contact with doctors all day, and you know, and trying to you know, get everyone on the same page, you know, and, 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 you know, hanging on to hope and trying, you know, talking to friends, you know, the people that, you know, you know, my, my producer, Michaela Watkins, you know, Jerry, you know, just like my, my mother who was terrible. Like there's that point where people are saying, oh, she'll be okay. And you're like, I don't think so. This is not going that way. But that's what people say. Yeah. For them. I guess. I think so. Maybe that's... I don't know what you want to hear. Right. What, what's the alternative? What, we'll see. I think I'm, I'm here for you if you want to talk. Oh, okay. What can I do? Is there anything I can do? Sometimes just listen. Or say, I'm so sorry. This sounds awful. But there's just that panic, you know. You're going through this and you're like, what the fuck is happening? Do you know what I mean? What is this? There was just moments during that day where, like, you know, she got in there. When she got there, she had a ruptured spleen. And she had been feeling pains in her stomach that she couldn't identify. And she's very sensitive to that. 
because of um uh of her celiacs you know and uh and she couldn't figure out what this pain was and and again it was symptomatic and at some point they're like you know they had to move her from one hospital to the other one because they had run out of like these these machines to um oxygenate blood i don't know if they were being used by covid patients or not but thank god she went to a pretty good hospital and then they moved her down to keck to get her on one of these machines and you know the doc was like i don't understand how you know this woman is the sickest woman in my hospital and they just couldn't get her blood to work and then they they removed her spleen you know and it was just like it, it just kept getting worse all day and i and i got a name of some doctor or for a friend of a friend's so like well what's this spleen thing can she live without a spleen and the guy was like uh, oh yeah and I'm like, what? But, um, so, so after, like, I, you know, I, I went down there, you, you know, in the middle of the night, the doc said that he could, you know, get me in to see her, you know, and that she would probably be gone. And I didn't know what to do or whether I should. And it just sounded too much. Yeah. You, know, you get like, he, yeah, that's basically, he said, she's probably going to be gone. We're taking her off the machines. You know, and then, um, you know, after she died, you know, I had a, you know, it's just like she had a friend who, you know, was her, worked with her for years as publicist and we had to put together a statement, you know, and I had to, you know, talk to uh, her family and, you know, and then I went down there at like 1230 at night to the ICU and, and spent some time with her body. It was uh, pretty awful. And I don't, you know, I don't know if it was good, but, you know, but, you know, there's no one in the hospital and, you know, no, in terms of closure, in terms of knowing it was real, it was good to do and to be able to say goodbye and say, I love you. And, you know, but it was like, they couldn't, They couldn't really, uh, you know, clean her up, you know, so I'm just going to a hospital and, you know, and whatever she had been through all day between surgeries and intubation, you know, that was all apparent. She was still intubated when I got there, you know, dead, you know, that's like. How you gonna, you know, but so then, you know, I got home and you, you don't sleep, you're in shock. You don't know, like it's completely it shatters your whole being, you know, it's not even, but I think, you know, doing that at the end of that day, like I knew she was dead. You know, a lot of people, I think, talk about that denial thing. But I think if it did anything, is that like, you know, I knew she was dead. But then there was like, you know, I had to call people and, you know, you know, just like, like what, what happens now? You know, and there was all her stuff and everything. And there was a whole other house of stuff. She had just moved down there. She had just finalized her divorce. And and no one's going anywhere because of COVID. And, and I, her car is in front of my fucking house. 
and uh, so my brother came out right right away, and we just started dealing, you know, just like bagging up all these supplements. That was the heartbreaking thing. Is this is a woman that was so like on top and of her health, you know, trying to maintain just so many supplements, dude. I went through those away and we started going through stuff, you know, and I started trying to figure out, you know, what do we got to do? You know, I mean, it's all on me. You know, I'm, I'm talking to her dad and she's got an uncle who lives in LA, a sculptor. So he's around, but you know, like I've got the keys to the apartment. I've got to figure out, you know, how do they get in touch with the landlord? I've got to, you know what I mean? And I don't want to, you know, go through her stuff. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to go through, you know, her it was weird because like, you know, there was the electronics, you know, her, her dad, you know, wanted the computer and the phone and there was some sort of by grace of God in some weird way, you know, like I, you know, after I was able to sort of pull contacts and stuff out of there, like I, like I misplaced or lost the paper with the code on it. So like by the time I sent them out, the struggle to figure out whether it was correct or not. To, to give someone's electronics to somebody, uh, even if it's your father, you're a grown person. On some level, you have to figure that everything you wanted anyone to have, they had. Like, I didn't go through her shit. So it was really kind of a dilemma. But by the time I sent them out, I, I didn't have the code anymore. So it's out of my hands, you know. But there was a weird sort of, not a power dynamic, but like I really didn't feel it was my place to manage any part of this other than you know, out of respect for her and her family to try to do what I could. But, you know, and then on top of that, I'm crying constantly. I can't control the emotions. That's the thing about grief that I found, I guess, most daunting and most surprising was that you cannot stop it. Like, it's a real thing. It's not like, you know, you, you know, as a comic, you know, we, it's our job to manage emotions, if not stuff them entirely. And make them into something else, you know. But there's no stopping grief. There's just no stopping it. And, you know, my brother came and I'm just crying. I used to, I cried a lot while I was eating. I don't know. As soon as I would start eating, I'd start crying. I don't know why. It's sort of an odd thing. Must have been good food, no? <laughs> no, I don't know. It didn't matter what it was. It was just like, I think it was a time where my brain, you know, would stop. Because I was eating, maybe. I don't know. But I remember it happened a few times where I just start crying uncontrollably while eating. So the process of grief was, you know, my brother stayed out for, you know, a couple weeks. You know, but eventually I was on my own with it, you know. And eventually people would come by and they'd stand on the, in the yard or, you know, mask up or drop food off and stuff. And, and I kept talking to friends and the Zoom thing kept happening. But, you know, there were other things that were just... You know, I had to fucking divvy up stuff. You know, I had a, you know, I know she had a core group of a few good friends and I'm like, do you, you know, and her mom and stuff, do you, do you want this jacket? Do you want this hat? Do you, what am I going to do with these necklaces? You know, you guys want this stuff. It's not, I don't, you know, it's not mine to keep, you know, these are, you know, keepsakes, you know, and, and try to, you know, like she had a good friend who wanted a, one of her dresses and stuff. Her mom wanted her crew jacket and stuff. Uh, from a show and I have the shirt I met her in. I have the, her 
beloved green leather jacket. I have her red cowboy boots. I have one of her hats and a few t-shirts. I have that stuff. I kept it in the hallway for a long time. You know, um, but I had to, uh, what did it, what did it feel like when you took it out of the hallway? Well, I see it still, you know, I can still look at it, but it was, it was like situated on a coat rack. You know, the hat was on top and the jacket was hanging, the boots were there. So it was almost like human size, you know? Well, then it just becomes a very, it becomes a weird thing uh, in terms of, you know, why is that there still? And then all the mystical things, you know, hummingbirds and trees. And like, I, I remember I went to Taos a few months after she passed and t- just trying to figure out some way to process stuff. But I was alone. I saw my buddy Devin up there who I grew up with. He lived in Santa Fe and I started crying in some enchiladas telling you the food thing. <laughs> but the but the harder things were to sort of deal with the responsibilities that were only mine because of COVID in a lot of ways. Like, I reached out to her husband, who had no reason to like me. You know, I don't know to what degree I'm seen as a, a, a catalyst of their separation, or, but I don't know. I, I kind of I met the guy once before we were together, but you know, I emailed him. I said, "Hey, man, you know." Um. You know, if you want to, if you want to know what happened in these last few days, you, you know, I was with her. So, if you want to know what happened, you know, I'm, I, I, I'll tell you. I'll talk to you. We should, we can talk. You know, if if that's something you want to do. And uh, and we did, and that was some like some real man shit, you know. In in what way? Well, I mean, it's hard, dude. Like, I don't know where that guy was at with me, and I just wanted to make sure that he had some sense of this. You know, this is a guy that, you know, spent his life with her, and they have a child together, and, you know, and, and this woman, you know, that, you know, he loved and, and you know, spent half his life with, you know, died in my fucking house. So, you know, I think he was owed that if, you know, if I could be of service you know, because that was the horrible thing in in a lot of ways was that like you know a lot of these people didn't know me. I'm just the guy that she died with, you know, and it was you know it's fucking horrendous, you know. But that was me projecting a lot. I don't know that they saw it like that. But we talked, you know, and I told him, you know, what went down and you know how it unfolded, and um, and we you know we cried on the phone and and uh, you know that was that call. And then, uh, you know, and then when people were, you know, the New York Times wrote an obituary and, you know, there was a picture, a selfie that we took in Ireland and they talked to me and, you know, and shortly after that, you know, one of her cousins reached out to me and said, you know, you know, maybe you should reel it in a little and not be so public with your grief because there's a lot of people grieving. And I must have hurt. It did. But. And and I felt justified at first. I'm like, you know, fuck that. I mean, what about my feelings? And I realized, like, well, you're a public person. And there's a point there. Is that like, you know, you don't have to be the face of this grief publicly. 
You know, the, that New York Times thing, that was enough. She was right. Yeah, I was like, I understand that. Uh, even though my first reaction was, fuck you. I was like, she was right. And I just, you know, I stopped doing interviews and stuff. Because like, not unlike, you know, the acknowledgement of people who have had a long history with her out of respect for them. You know, like, I'm in the position where I was, you know, I'd finally met somebody, you know, who who I loved and who was, you know, around my age and who I respected her work and, you know, and, you know, I, I was very attracted to and all this. Like, I thought like, wow, maybe this life is going to work out, you know? And then, you know, she passed away. And so like, I'm in this horrible position of grieving possibilities, you know, not, you know, my history with her was limited, but what I thought the future would look like was, you know, taken away. You know, I don't sit around and think about it. If she were alive, we what would we be doing? I don't do that. But, you know, I, I had to have some level. You know, I know people say, look, pain is pain, and there's no reason to compare. But I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think pain is pain, and, you know, however anyone experiences loss or whatever. But I, I and I'm not saying any loss is worse. I, it just, it's different. You know, I regret not having more memories with her. And the people that do have a lifetime of memories have that, you know. So it's kind of a two-edged thing, you know, like out of respect for them, I can't, I don't think it's right for me to sort of, you know, be the face of this, of her death. You know, I think let her work speak for it. But I was also sort of, pre, but also like I, I kind of wish I'd had more time with her, you know. But there was all this practical stuff to deal with, you know, that I was kind of dealing with with the cousin. Like, you know, what are we going to do with the body? What happens? You know, as a Jew, you know, you get that body in the ground quick. A couple of days, max. You know, but there was this sort of like, you know, her dad, you know, and uh, was like, you know, we should put together a service or something. and Maybe a video thing. And they're like, does she want to be... Are we going to, is it going to be a cremation or, you know, and then there was talk of like, you know, maybe she was kind of once talked about being, you know, buried in a natural way, you know, under a tree or something where you just become dirt. And I, I was like, I, I don't know, you know, this is not for me. You know, I don't know. It sounds so fucking overwhelming. Yeah. But like, it was weird. I was in it and I was dealing with it. You know, it was, it was probably keeping me from really falling apart and, you know, and, you know, it was, I was, you know, I can show up, man, you know, if there's work to be done, you know, I can do it. But, but it just got to the point where, you know, I was like, um, you know, they finally got her out of the freezer down at Keck, you know, at USC Keck center, Keck Memorial, whatever it is. And, you know, they arranged for her to be put you know, at a, a mortuary over in uh, Glendale somewhere, her, her uncle. And, and then she was there. But she was down there for a couple of weeks, you know, without knowing what to do. And nobody was mobile. Um, but I just was sort of like, you, you know, someone, you got to do something. And I, you know, I, 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 you know, I reached out again, you know, to her husband. I said, you know, you guys should, you know, I can't remember when I did it whether it was the first time I, I told him, I said, if you, you should come down here and see her if, if you want to do that, you know, but they were like, it's COVID. No, but I think once they moved her, they, they did finally come the kid and, uh, her ex. And, uh, but I was part of any of that. I was just trying to help, you know, 
and they finally did cremate her. And, um, but I didn't get to, I, there was no memorial service. I didn't get any of that. But I did see her. And then her husband, I think in a nice gesture, asked, asked me if I wanted any of the ashes. And I'm like, no. He just, I kind of made a joke of it at first. What do you just, you got a scale there? You, <laughs> bagging him up? But, Don't uh, short me. Don't put your finger on the scale. <laughs> yeah, okay. I want a nice piece. Give me a nice weight. But, uh, yeah, and then there was the car. You know, I had to, uh, and you know, and you really, you know, you, your brain does something interesting. And I talk about it a bit in my special where I say you'll go mystical if you're sad in grief. You go mystical, you know, like hummingbirds became Lynn and, you know, sort of weird little coincidences that, you know, make you feel their presence, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> so stupid. Like, she, we, you know, we were kind of making these little goofy videos that she was, you know, uh, Marco Poling here and there. But there was a video of her. Yeah, I was playing um, disco music on the stereo. I was playing Get Down On It, you know, that song? Mm -hmm. Get Down On It. And she made this video of her talking, and I was in the background playing the music. And, you know, she was singing to that song, and suggesting, you know, me. And it was cute. I don't remember who she made it for, but I have a copy of it. I have a few videos of her. But I used to watch it after she died. I have one of her singing um, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah with a ukulele that she made for me. She was so pretty. It was terrible. But like, so we finally got, you know, her old man got the um she had just gotten this new car for her new life in Los Angeles, you know. This little Kia or whatever it was, but her old man had gotten them to to take it back given the situation. So me and uh Jim uh oh, what's his name? Oh, come on, dude. Why is my brain so fucked up? Her friend Jim um you know, he was trying to help out too. Uh, Jim Turner. Oh, I know Jim. Yeah, me and Jim Turner took that car back out to the dealership. I think that's one of the most heartbreaking things after people die are the physical reminders that this person did not expect to die, that they expected to live dude i had a whole house full of stuff she just moved there she moved all her stuff down there and uh and that car was just sitting there getting leaves and dirty you know like every day and it's covid no one's doing nothing like with the house you know i went over there and i got a few things that i wanted of hers and um you know i there's a couple of things that I thought other people would want that were friends of ours. Like Kate Micucci had given her a drawing she did of her and Michaela had sent her a, a postcard or something. And I got those things and I gave them back to those people. And I took some, some random stuff, you know, some pots and pans and stuff. But she just got all set up and she barely stayed there. And, and then I'd, I had to, you know, I we had to engage her other friends from Seattle who were in town 
to sort of deliberate, you know, where things would go, you know, what goes back to her family and that kind of stuff. I, it was too much for me. But they came in and went through clothes and like all her stuff from high school and college and all her life. She had just moved it down there. It was terrible. Um, but oh, but so Jim Turner and I drove that thing back, and when we got to the lot, there was music playing out in the lot, and it was "Get Down on It," and I'm like, "Oh, oh my god!" That kind of thing. Like, all right, you're still watching. Pretty funny. That feels soothing. It felt connected. I don't know yeah. if it's soothing. Were but there, go ahead. What were there any ways that you? soothed yourself whether healthy or unhealthy in the days months years afterwards well there was a lot of food coming which is soothing and you, you know and then there was you, you know after a few months you know i stayed in touch with people every day my friend sam called me every day there was a lot of crying on phone calls and you know waking up and you know i i, I just got into an exercise regimen, you know, like I had to, you know, I got on the podcast three days after she passed away and just, you know, cried my eyes out and dealt with that because we reposted at that time. We were reposting episodes. To that episode. Yeah, yeah of, of people who passed. And I thought, well, let's honor that. Let's honor her yeah. and I'll honor my feelings in the moment. And people will do with it what they will. Yeah, you know, I never listened to it again. I can't imagine what that sounds like. It was really moving. It was really moving. And it did not feel inappropriate in, in in any way. Yeah. Well, that's good. So like in my memory, you know, I just leaned into exercise and, you know, doing my stuff, dealing with COVID. You know, there was also a part of me that like I didn't want to be seen as a victim. I felt that, you know, all of it should be put on her and her family. Like I didn't want to be looked at as the, the guy who, you know, like I, I did have loss and I did, you know, I was accepting help. And there were people that I was allowing my emotions to come out with. Anybody who who came over, including my neighbor, I would cry and, you know, and, and deal. But I was not holding any of that back. And I felt connected enough to a community of people, even though we couldn't see each other in person. But then I started seeing people in in person, you know. After a few few months, I don't mean four months, five months, you know, I wasn't like dating, but like I was trying to spend time with people. I thought I should reach out because I'm a person that, you know, you know, I'm I I am sort of a, a little love addicty, a little compulsive, you know, in terms of connecting. But I wanted to spend time with people. I wouldn't say I was dating. I I don't even know if I was really sleeping with people, but I was definitely engaging with people for better or for worse. Um. You know, just to find some peace. Were your parents uh, involved at all? I don't emo know. emotionally in it, or did no. you just kind of want to avoid that whole? Well, you know, my mother, like days after she died, just called with you know with the t completely wrong tone. She was like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, really? "What? Yeah, they're just my mother is incapable of dealing with any of this." Like she's, you know, she has a boyfriend who's in his 80s and he gets sick and she's like, I don't know what to do. We had a woman come over. Like she doesn't know, you know, how to engage with sickness or with death or anything. Incredibly, you know, vain person. And my father, you know, was, you know, overly practical. His wife was, you know, overwhelmed and sort of, my dad's you know, married to an ex-Catholic, you know, Christian woman who, you know, was very kind of thoughtful and matter of fact, but my dad was like, "All right, so you know, you'll you'll meet somebody, 
pretty quickly. Yeah. Oh, man. So that there was no go to there. Did uh, you expect any? No. Uh, but that's my, good. No, I don't go to them to them with anything. And now my dad's got uh, dementia, and my mom's. You know, I'm going to go see my mother. I, you know, I'm showing up for them somehow. Um, but very, you know, you know, because I think it's the right thing to do. But uh, but my buddy Sam was, you know, I talked to him every night. You know, even now, like it's weird. We're having a hard time breaking up, like because we talked through every night from the day she died all the way through the pandemic. We talked every night, and he's got a wife and kids in New York, and and there's now it's sort of we don't quite know how not to do the every night thing. So if if I don't hear from him for a couple of days, I'm like, so what's going on? Where are you at? (laughs) We're we're having a hard time shifting out of that, and that's like now. This is currently. Um. So my parents were not much help. And I don't know how I really dealt with it. Like eventually I kind of met a woman through my website, oddly, um, who, you know, we were both sort of in this pandemic. She worked at the Humane Society. I, you know, she was one of the people that emailed me, you know, and she had this great name, you know, and I was like, you know, how could, how could, how could I not respond to a woman with this name? And, you know, we went on a hike and, you know, and eventually we started spending time together, um, sort of pandemic time. And, but also like, I, I was very clear about where I was at emotionally and that, you know, I was in, you know, I was grieving certainly and, and not really emotionally available in certain ways. And I don't even know really what I'm doing, but we hung out, you know, and, you know, no one's ever really given me any flack for, for that. I know people are weird about, you know, how much time, uh, between losing somebody and, you know, but like, I don't, I don't give a fuck about what they think, you know, and, and, but I didn't really get that much pushback. It was probably about six months and, you know, we just started hanging out because they're very lonely during the pandemic, but we're still together <laughs> somehow. Does she ever get uncomfortable with the, you emotions coming up? That are that are deep about Lynn or talking about no, her. No, she kind of gets it, you know. And I, I don't know, you know, if she doesn't feel threatened by. No, yeah, I think she's just kind of happy that you know she's got her own, you know, trauma. That's why she chose and story. You. Of course, you know, there's, you know, it goes all all around. Yeah, you know, and it's just sort of odd that like that relationship. Just like I'm incredibly grateful to her. And to the simplicity of it all, you know, and we ultimately got closer and, you know, even now, but like, I don't talk too seriously. I don't know where I'm at, you know, in terms of like, I I don't really want to get married again. And, you know, and she doesn't want children, which is great in a way, but I think she'd probably like to, you know, get married, you know, and she's younger than me fairly significantly, which happens, um, you know. But I don't know what to do with it. We kind of go day to day with it, but we're enjoying each other's company and, you know, and I'm trying to be as gracious and as good to her as possible, even with my emotional liabilities in terms of, you know, capability around intimacy and around, you know, providing something. I'm always concerned about that, but I've, I've sort of accepted that. Like I am sort of emotionally incapacitated in some ways that I don't know if they're going to get better. 
I'd like to think that with Lynn, you know, I had a chance with it. But that's not that's not what's happening anymore. And I do think about like, am I regressing? Am I back to pre Lynn Mark? Do I ever get to go, you know, be whatever that was gonna be again? You know, that kind of stuff. And I imagine it's probably hard for for the woman I'm with now on some level. But we don't wallow in it. You know, like she doesn't you know I don't know what her her ultimate expectations are, but I'm showing up for her, you, you know, and there's part of me that's sort of like, you know, I don't know how this goes, but you know, and also like, I'm also afraid of, you know, staying in something like I've stayed in things for years that, you know, but out of respect for her, I just hope she, you know, is okay with where we're at. And she, and I check in with her pretty frequently, usually by saying, you know, I'm old, right? <laughs> You know, in a few years, I'm going to be really old. You understand that, right? I have the same conversation with with my girlfriend. Just yesterday, I was walking the dog and saying, you know, I forgot the first name of a pretty close acquaintance. And I was like, I just want you to know now is the time to get out. And, yeah. you know, and she laughs. But there's a part of me that's kind of serious. Yes, I'm I'm right there with you. And... In a way, you know, because like where that ends, I mean, there's always sort of judgment around, you know, those kind of age gap relationships, you know, where somehow or another, I think a lot of times the man looks like, you know, some kind of culprit of some kind. But ultimately, like I what I see in the future is me saying, like, you know, you don't have to stay. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of life ahead of you. That's pretty sexy. To let someone go like that. <laughs> Just put it all on the platter right ahead of him. You know, this turkey's poisoned. Yeah, yeah. It's tasty, yeah, but... Yeah. It's up to you. It's up to you. <laughs> it's not going to kill you. Just letting you know. Just letting you know. Well, buddy, I appreciate you uh, sharing all the stuff that you shared, and it's always it's always great to, to see you. And normally I ask people, you know, where... Where can people find you, et cetera, et cetera? Anything you want to plug? Your special is great, by the way. Oh, thanks. It's, um, I think that like how I handled grief and that I'm very proud of. And I, and be. again, and one of the darkest jokes I've ever heard yeah. and made me laugh out loud. And it's I was a, like, that is, it's a killer. Yeah. But, you know, I talked about some of the real experiences here where that stuff came from and, and sort of balancing that part of the grief we didn't really talk about was that, a big part of me processing it was at some point I started doing Instagram lives alone at my house and just getting on there for like an hour, sometimes hour and a half and doing my morning and talking my thoughts and having my feelings and playing records and playing with the cat. Interactive or just kind of monologue? Interactive. People watching anywhere from 500 to 1,500 but, but, people. But people like uh, commenting, texting, sure. questions, sure. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. What did that feel like? I don't know. I felt like at some point during the grieving process, I needed to sh to have an audience in a way yeah. or to connect in the way that I was used to connecting. You know, in a way it makes sense because for those of us that are, that are performers, um, it's the one intimacy that, that we feel like we can kind of predict that we know that we can have a sense of, I can corral this thing. Yeah. And, 
and I yeah, can feel some... seen without <laughs> worrying about the other person's uh, emotional needs overwhelming me. Contextual, uh, contextualizing it, you know, it, it was like I wasn't trying to do material, but I've always processed my life on stage in a, in a fairly real time way to the point where, you know, a lot of audiences who have witnessed some of that, like after my second marriage fell apart, I was on stage workshopping stuff during the separation. Um, And I remember I was doing it in the basement of the, of the bleaker theater and upstairs, Mike Berbiglia of all people was doing a fully produced show. And I was in this dungeon like basement. And that to me was, you know, somehow metaphorical for my career. And I'm, I'm, you know, on the verge of crying downstairs about my wife leaving me. And, and for some reason, time out in New York had sent someone to watch it. And it was not meant to be seen like that. And they said, Mark seems to have no distance from the material at all. I'm like, yeah, it's not material yet. It's right. pretty raw. Was uh, this before the podcast? Uh, yeah, it would have been before the podcast. Yes. So, so this stuff, like, you know, when I started talking about it on stage, it was raw. And I was at, like, Dynasty Typewriter, and I was doing a residency, and they were my fans. And a lot of times, you know, I would get choked up and not be able to process it. Because this interesting thing is that I felt it was a tremendous evolution and risk to to try to address grief, you know, yeah. as as comedic material in a way that was honest. Because, it, you know, it's, it's delicate stuff. And... It, the challenge of that is, is that the the sadness is a given. So how do you find a place that balances it in an appropriate way w- with comedy? Yeah. Right? And it just took, you know, talking about it and shaping it and, and also being respectful to the dead and to the to her family, which I don't even know how they really I, – I stopped hearing from them. Have you ever had the author, Caitlin Doty? No. I don't think so. Have Do you I? know who she is? She writes about grief. She's a um, I had some a mortician I, oh with no, a, with no, a I great sense of humor, and she's written a couple of books about grief, particularly the way we handle death and grief in America uh, as opposed to around the world. She would be a fabulous guest. I think you guys would, would really uh, connect. Well, I mean, the you know, it, it's an inevitable. Right. And, and we as as Americans insulate ourselves from it almost entirely. Yeah. Well, you'll find another one. I mean, that's another, that's the, that's the way that this is messy. I'm feeling uncomfortable. How can I be positive? And we have no idea that we're really doing it so that we're more comfortable. Right. Another what person? Uh, another, another, yes, you'll, you'll find another, another girlfriend. Oh, oh. you know, well, yeah, you know, but you're saying that as that's, that's what people oh, oh, say oh, oh, so oh, that oh. they don't have oh, to sit right. in the discomfort of, uh, I don't know how this person's going to react. It's funny, though, because to... only my father really was the one who did that. Maybe my parents, but other people, certainly people that knew Lynn and everybody realized that, you know, that she was sort of something uh, special and, and, and that there is no other one. Um. And I think that mostly they, they're they just happy I'm okay uh, and whatever I'm doing is going to, you know, have to be okay as long as, you know, I'm, you, you know, it's just sad. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't know really what happens. I don't know. 
and I guess, you know, I, I know you're kind of, we're trying to wrap up, it's but, okay. but no, the thing I'm about, no I know, but the thing about the grief is like, it, it definitely, you know, comes and goes and, you know, I can let it overwhelm me, which is fine sometimes, but, you know, you think about it every day, but you also think about your own life and, and, you know, you know, what, how fragile it all is. Yeah. And, you know. And I don't know that there's moments where I think like, you know, could I have done anything more? You know, did I handle it right? But I don't live there. That's good. And I also don't live in what, what could have been, you know, but I do, you know, miss her. And it's, it's been a while since I've gone, you know, and looked at the videos of her and every once in a while your phone is like, you know, gives you a montage of a vacation out of nowhere. The person that programmed that for Apple clearly has never lost anyone <laughs> close to them. <laughs> or maybe they have. Yeah. And they're just sort of like, huh? Remember? But, you know, I don't know. Life does go on. That's just another one of the scary things is like, you know, fairly quickly, you know, after someone passes away, the world just keeps moving. Yeah. Do we order in? Is it, you know, you feel like Chinese? Yeah. You know, that's that realizing that there are people who love you who are going to say that an hour after you die uh, is very humble. Now, probably humbling. they're going to say, like, who who sent these cookies? That's what they're going to say. <laughs> Why? How come I, there's more food out there on the porch? Yeah. Don't yeah. they know I don't like oatmeal? Exactly. <laughs> um. Check out Mark's special. It's really funny. What's the name of it? Again? From bleak to dark. From bleak to dark. Yeah, it's it's really good. And uh, you know, like everybody says on your podcast when they're when they're a guest, uh, I love I love your podcast. I'm a fan, and uh, you inspired me to start this podcast. Your episode with uh, Todd Hansen. I was like, oh, oh dark can be compelling. Yeah, I wonder and, how that guy's doing. Yeah, I hope he's good. Yeah, yeah. Um. We didn't even get to the thing we were talking about before we started recorded, which which was growing up in a sexualized, uh, sexually charged environment uh, yeah. in, in your house. We'll yeah. save that for another episode. Yeah, I think I still have some processing to do there, but like when I get a handle on it, we can do another yeah. one. Yeah, love you, buddy. Thanks. Love for you coming. too. Thanks for having me. Man, that that was some intense shit. Maybe that should be the name of the podcast: some intense shit. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Persuasive Crow. Crows can't be so persuasive. Uh, and, and she only filled out a small portion of it. Um, she's straight in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, never oh, has been emotionally abused. Uh, and this is the only part she filled out, but I, I found it uh, to be really interesting. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? I think about suicide a lot. Actually, I think about it all the time, multiple times a day. I am not suicidal, nor do I ever have suicidal thoughts about myself specifically, but I can't seem to go an hour without thinking about suicide. I watch and re-watch suicide scenes in movies. When I think about it, it excites me. I enjoy thinking about it. It's intriguing in a way, and I don't really understand why. Maybe I'm in denial. Maybe I have these thoughts about myself, but I realistically, I can't imagine myself ever choosing this as an actual option. It's just always a fantasy of something that I wish I could do. It feels so good to say this. I don't want to tell anyone, nor do I feel like I can tell anyone. I've never even written it down. Thank you for sharing that. And um, wow, you know, and speaking of, of Mark Marin, one of the things um, he's shared before uh, on his podcast is thinking about suicide in terms of um, the relief that it gives him from thinking of it as a plan B, obviously not actually making a plan or obsessing about it, but just kind of the idea. Um, and I got to be honest, sometimes I think that too, you know, when I look into the broken crystal ball of my life and try to predict where I'm going to be five years from now, of course, the creative part of my brain paints an awful doomy picture of post-apocalyptic Cormac McCarthy landscape and and that thought pops in my mind and i don't think that's unusual i i think uh i don't know and and i feel so talking about the topic of suicide i get so nervous because i i know people listening it's such an intense topic for them It's also kind of why I started doing this podcast 12 years ago is to talk about the things that are difficult to talk about. And um, anyway, thank you for sharing that. I was talking to myself. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by a, a woman who calls herself, uh, what is her name? I'm not good at creating fake names. Now, see, I like that. And so you actually are good at creating fake names. How would you like people to think of you? I want people to think of me as kind, loving, and happy. I want to be loved. How does it feel writing that? Sad, because I'm not sure if I ever had a long period of happiness besides when I was little. I failed over and over at building a community for myself. I am 27, female. I have ADHD and anxiety. I have no friends besides my partner, 
I love him, but I yearn for friendship outside of him as well. Some say I just haven't met the right people yet, but after 27 years of all the people I've met, they can't all be the wrong people. I must be wrong. I am broken. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm sorry that you're going through this, but I'm glad that you voiced this because I want to weigh in on this. And I struggled for a while trying to, how can I put the, this into words to encourage her that to not give up searching for her tribe? And the best analogy I can think of is, you know, the the language of recovery, you know, talking about trauma, supporting each other, you know, the language of, of the heart, whatever you want to call it. It is it is its own language. And there are a lot of people who either can't speak it or don't want to speak it. So it's it it's you know, the first language that popped into my head was Portuguese. Yes. There are tons of people out there that speak speak Portuguese, but it's not that common for somebody living outside of Portugal or Brazil. So it can sometimes take an effort, but once you find one person that speaks your Portuguese, they know other people that also speak it. And before you know it, it's exponentiating the amount of support that you can find. That's been my experience and the experience of a lot of people that I know. If I had never started going to support groups or gotten help for my drinking or drugging, I would have never gotten the support I needed from my group of friends who don't suffer from the things that I needed help with. So by putting myself out there, which I did not want to do, I found my people that speak Portuguese. And hello to anybody listening from Portugal. (laughs) I've heard Portugal is beautiful. My girlfriend's been there. It's on my bucket list. How does it feel writing that? Sad because I'm not sure I ever have had a long period of happy. Oh, she did that already. (laughs) How do you use a time machine? I go back and really try to convince my younger self to advocate for therapy for my mom. She's had a lot going on. She had a lot going on and couldn't see how bad my anxiety was. I cried myself to sleep most nights. I was too afraid to ask and say I needed help because I thought my problems were insignificant in comparison to hers. Well, I think that might be a big part of the puzzle is your experience with help is terrifying and unfruitful. So who wouldn't have a part of their brain trying to protect themselves saying, don't do that again? It hurt. I'm supposed to feel happy and fulfilled about the fact that I am 27, own a house, and have a six-figure job and a partner. I have everything I need, but yet I have many days where I feel empty and scared. I feel lonely and unlovable. I feel as if I don't deserve any of this and that it will be taken away. I'm a fraud. I'm a piece of shit. I don't work hard enough. From the outside looking in, it appears I have it all. I'm living the dream. In this economy, as a young person, I've succeeded. So why I have no right to be broken? I have no right to be depressed. I have no right to have frequent anxiety attacks. I have no, quote, real problems, unquote. People are struggling to feed their kids. I should be grateful for what I have. By all standards, I should be enjoying life. Instead, 
I just wish I was never born. I did not want to kill myself, but very few people would miss me if I went away forever. This is the real reason I don't want kids. If I hate living so much, how could I bring another soul into this hell? I am sorry that you are in so much, so much pain. And I encourage you to, as I said a couple of minutes ago, to get help, but to, to stop comparing people's outsides to their insides. Just because your outside is doing well, irrelevant, irrelevant to the struggle that's going on inside you, and you are not making too big of a deal of it. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Sad. I just want to be able to feel happy about the small things in life. I just want to say that is doable. That is doable. But it takes time and it takes effort. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? No. I think that I don't deserve to feel this way. My life hasn't been bad enough to warrant it. Bullshit. You're in pain. Pain is pain. doesn't matter what envelope it arrives in. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? No. Maybe. I think hearing your surveys has helped me to dive deeper into how I really feel, but at the same time, their sadness only makes me feel sadder. Thank you for, for sharing that, man. I'm sorry you're going through that. This is from the love survey filled out by List Lover. And they write, I love that I have friends who I don't need to see or be in contact with often. And I can still trust we're friends and can contact each other when we can and want to. We can easily go no contact for months, maybe sending a few videos to each other if even that. But the friendship isn't threatened by time or separation. When we see each other again, it's like time hasn't passed at all. And uh, to the to the person from the survey before that survey that I just read, I I don't think that that is an unusual survey. I think it's totally doable finding your your people. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by, I believe we've read her surveys before, Daughter of Wolves. She is in her 20s, uh, was raised, she says, in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, She is unsure about how she uh, identifies. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was sexually abused for about four years, beginning at age 14 by a 19-year-old I was seeing. She's been emotionally abused. The man that sexually abused me was also incredibly manipulative and told me constantly that my life was perfect compared to his. Anytime I tried to vent about having a bad day or I began to cry around him, he would become enraged and tell me I had no reason to be sad or depressed. If we were on the phone, he would often just hang up on me. He also convinced all of our friends at the time that I was manipulative and cruel to him, so none of them would listen to me when I went to them for support. They didn't speak Portuguese. Any positive experiences? When I first met him, I thought he was romantic and sweet because he was affectionate and liked giving me cute, heartfelt gifts. I loved this about him at first. 
but now I wonder if he was just grooming me. Sounds to me like he was. Consistency is such an important thing in a relationship. You know, good things that people do don't negate bad things that they do. I I think we need to consider both of them, but it's not, you know, it's not accounting. You're not looking for a tally to see whether it's plus or minus per se. Darkest thoughts. I hate babies. My family and my husband's family expect us to have kids, but the idea terrifies me. I think babies are hideous and disgusting and their presence enrages me. When I hear one, I normally have to leave the room and I often fantasize about smashing their heads in or killing them in some other brutal manner. It disgusts me and I feel like a faulty human being. I can't even love the thing that every person is supposed to have a biological imperative to protect. The only baby I've ever been to been around and not felt feelings of anger towards is my best friend's newborn son because I see my friend in him and he feels like my family. But I'm still terrified that I'm not suited for motherhood and I'll die alone and unloved someday. Darkest secrets. When I moved away for college, I cheated on my ex that abused me in high school. I know it's not an excuse, but I hadn't felt happy or loved in years and craved romance. I was jealous of my friends that seemed to enjoy their sexuality, and I became very bitter. I had never enjoyed sex, as it had always been coerced and painful before. I felt like like if I forced myself to keep trying, I could find the missing piece to the puzzle that everyone else seemed to have. Even though I had never enjoyed sex, I still felt desire. On top of this, I struggle with low self-esteem, and I've always sought attention from men for validation. I feel worthless when people don't find me attractive, so this just worsened my loneliness. Eventually, I couldn't restrain myself and went on a partying spree where I ended up cheating on him with two other guys and my female roommate. I broke up with him the next day but never told him why. I beat myself up about this for nine years and sometimes I wonder if I invented the sexual abuse in my head to justify what I did. This usually leads to self-destructive episodes where I end up self-harming. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, my initial thought as I read that is you are on an emotional and mental desert island trying to think your way off of it. You need support. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being raped. Writing that makes me feel like the worst feminist in the world. I cannot... I cannot tell you how many women have written that exact thing in their surveys. It is so common and it is not a comment on your morality. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my parents the truth about my mental health and how much they let me down as a teenager. I can't because my mother has a tendency to fly off the handle at the mere implication that I'm mentally ill. She will devote She will devolve into fits of sobbing and panic attacks, blaming herself for it and going on about how I'm going to cut her out of life or kill myself. She will start calling me obsessively and it gets worse the less I answer. 
It's impossible to deal with when I'm in a depressive episode, so I've become conditioned to lie and tell her or tell them I'm doing fine. Wow, your mom is a fucking narcissist. Wow, who would want to engage with that? Who would not be depressed when that is the parent that you have to go to? And I... I really encourage you to get into into some kind of help where you can learn some tools to distance yourself uh, or deal with your mom because that is some toxic, toxic shit. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could have just one massive breakdown where I don't have to hide it and I can cause a huge scene and show the world hurt that's trapped inside me. It's exhausting having to hold my life together outwardly so my mother's family can maintain the facade of us being, quote, the normal ones compared to my dad's family. I think anybody listening to your survey sees so clearly the dots connected to how you weren't seen as a human being growing up, how it was all probably about your mom and the world feels terrifying and you feel isolated who wouldn't after just a little bit that i've read in this survey have you shared these things with others i've talked to my husband implicitly about my rape fantasy i was too ashamed to elaborate much he was very kind and i believe he understands that my history of abuse may have something to do with it how do you feel after writing these things down like a freak you are not a freak anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences uh we might be weirdos but at least you're not alone to quote chanel miller i am with you on nights when you feel alone i am with you and then she writes that she'd love to hear an interview with chanel well we have had chanel and she was awesome uh it was from maybe two years ago Something like that, but just Google Chanel Miller and Mental Pod, and you'll see her uh, episode come up. And it was a great conversation. I was really, really happy to be able to to talk to her. But thank you for your survey. Sending you a hug. This is uh, some more loves from Liz Lover. And they write, I love that I was able to take a cutting from my grandparents' decades-old vine-like houseplant before it died and I lost both of the gran- and both of the grandparents. I associate the plant with them, and now every time I see the previous cutting, now multiple plants with long vines, they remind me of my grandparents. I've also given multiple cuttings to people I care about, and sharing them has always felt spiritual, like sharing a part of me. Wow. That's so cool. That is so cool, and what a great idea. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. And hold on one second. This is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Artemis. And uh, going through the Shame and Secret surveys, we have not had many at all filled out by men recently. Would love for some of you guys to to dive into that. Um, 
right, she calls herself Artemis. She identifies as straight. She's 18. She says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was around 10, my cousin would find a place to be alone, like the backyard at my house or his room, uh, his room at his, and a variety of things took place. In my childhood, tree, he wanted me to touch him. I said no at first, but ended up doing it. I still feel so ashamed, and I don't know what to call it or if it even deserves to be something. Yes, it does deserve to be something. Another time at his house, he wanted me to insert something in myself as he took his shirt off. I ended up getting an infection, but I barely remember the event. Only the fact that his mom walked in and he made a stupid excuse. In the multitude of occurrences, I don't remember him touching me. I feel so conflicted and angry about what happened, but maybe I was a curious kid and wanted to partake in it. I want to encourage you to give weight to the feelings that you're feeling and not judge yourself for them because that's where healing starts. And whatever his intent was, put that to the side for now. And and deal. If, if something is fucking us up emotionally, it does count. It does count. She's never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. My parents caused a lot of emotional neglect. My mom would give the silent treatment for weeks on end, sometimes months. It hurt so much because I couldn't do anything about it. If it was physical, at least I could report it and get help. As it was, there was nothing visible and I was stuck with it. They would also make me drink vinegar or put soap in my mouth when I did something bad, but I think that actually made me a better person, weirdly. Uh, I recommend this book all the time, but um, I recommend that you read Running on Empty by Dr. Janice Webb. I think you, you'll get a lot out of that. Any positive experiences with abusers? There have been many happy experiences with my mom. The experiences are from when I was very young, however, and they don't happen anymore. I wish I could walk next to her while she just held on to me. With my cousin, we never had any moments alone that were happy. It was either doing stuff or talking about awkward subjects like masturbation. Darkest thoughts. I wish it had gone further. I wish he had touched me as I said no. At least then I could say he did this without my consent instead of I might not have wanted something minor the first time, but it was fine as time went on. As of now, I'm just confused as to what happened and what to think. Darkest secrets. At one point, I wanted my cousin to touch me. It was during vacation, and I guess I was excited to do something without the knowledge of anyone. He was hesitant, but I wanted it to go both ways. Later on, after all of this, I had a kind of friend come over who would sleep in my room with me. One time, I devised a game in which we would play a staring contest, and the loser would have to strip and dance. I did this because I knew I could keep my eyes open longer. I don't know if my cousin messed me up or if I would have done this otherwise. I feel sick and haven't told anyone. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have many fantasies about me or a fictional character being raped. I feel disgusted. I guess it makes a little sense, though, because I was raised Christian and would not have sex before marriage in any other fashion. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone? 
I want to ask my cousin why he did what he did. I want to know his memories because I blocked out a lot. Have you shared these things with others? I told my sister the bare minimum of what happened with my cousin. She said that it was abuse, but I may have made it sound biased. How do you feel after writing writing these things down? It feels good to tell someone, even just a forum, but I feel sick for some of this. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Get a professional therapist. I'm still working on scheduling an appointment, but it really helps to talk. Amen. Amen. I really hope you you get the help that that you deserve. Um, You're so hard on yourself. So hard on yourself. As so many of us are. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Can't Stop Complaining. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I tell myself that I'm going to change. I'm going to get up and go to a tennis lesson, a ceramics class, that I'm going to work out and have the best revenge on my ex, but then I don't do shit. I lay in bed, I drink tequila, and I feel bad for myself. I know no one is ever going to love me. I know I'll never have friends. I know that I could be happy, but I won't do any of the work. It's pathetic. This is so textbook, and I guess this is a little tough love here, the untreated alcoholic addict, you know, although I can't say for sure that's what you are, but the fact you're drinking tequila in bed, uh, there's clearly a problem there. Self-pity. It goes hand in hand with untreated because it's all about us when we're not getting help and managing our issue, whatever it is. It's all about us. And you're beating yourself up. You know, the tequila, think of it as a piano on your back and you're beating yourself up for not jogging 10 miles. Well, who the fuck would feel motivated and great to go out and grab life by the, the horns when you're drinking tequila in bed? And if you can't stop drinking tequila to self-medicate, get help. Because I don't see any progress without dealing with that issue first. I just don't. And I know from personal experience, I tried to think my way out of feeling suicidal and unmotivated and self-hating for years. And it didn't work until I said to a group of people who I did not know, please help me. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't keep living like this. And it was fucking humbling and scary. At least in my mind, it was scary before I did that. And then after I did, it was freeing and connective and life-changing and amazing. What the fuck is going on with my my throat? Apologies to uh, my friends with misophonia. Uh, And then finally, this is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by uh, a therapist who's trying to figure it out herself. And she writes, I love sitting at my kitchen table, drinking coffee, staring out the window, pretending I'm sitting outside at a cafe in Paris. 
sitting in my recliner reading a historical romance book while listening to a fantasy tavern background YouTube video. Waking up with an waking up without an alarm. Listening to music with AirPods in and dancing in the kitchen. I love that one. Laying on the ground and looking up at the sky, seeing the birds fly and the branches sway in the wind. Catching someone dancing and singing in their car while they drive by themselves. And feeling my husband reach out to me and pull me close while he's deep in sleep. Those are beautiful. Thank you for those. Many thanks to to Mark uh, for our conversation. Many thanks to all of you who support the podcast. Um, and, and for those of you that are struggling financially, you can support the podcast by going to Apple Podcasts and writing a nice review, giving us a good, a good rating, uh, spreading the word on social media about the podcast. All of those things uh, we could really benefit and we could really use your help with. And to anybody who's out there and feeling like you're stuck or nobody understands, I just want to say for the one millionth time on this podcast, and I mean it sincerely, you are not alone. You are not alone. Your tribe is out there. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.